Welcome to Brave Dynamics. This is your host, Jeremy Ao. Leadership is harder than it looks. As a proven founder and Harvard MBA, I interview courageous entrepreneurs, executives, and investors every week. I also share my frontline experiences, coaching insights, and own professional development journey. If you're stepping up as a new leader, founding a startup, or venturing into the great unknown, this is the podcast for you. Sudhir Thomas Fadakat is the author of Floating on a Malayan Breeze, Travels in Malaysia and Singapore, and co-author of Hard Choices, Challenging the Singapore Consensus. He's currently working on a book about China and India. From 2006 to 2013, Sudhir worked for the Economist Corporate Network and Economist Insights, both units of the Economist Group, in Hong Kong and Singapore. He continues to work freelance for the company. He has moderated and spoken on panels across Asia for the firm, most recently at The Economist's Open Future Festival in October 2019 in Hong Kong. In his personal capacity as an author, Sudhir has spoken at numerous institutions and events around the world, including Columbia University, Harvard University, the World Bank, Yale and US, the Georgetown Literary Festival, and the Singapore Writers Festival. He is currently a contract-based supervising editor at DBS's Asian Insights office, as well as a senior writer at Incorporated Southeast Asia and Wildtype Media. Sudhir has written for a variety of publications, including The Economist, Foreign Affairs, Nikkei Asian Review, and The Straits Times. He has appeared on numerous regional and international video shows, including CNN's Anthony Bourdain, Parts Unknown. Born and schooled in Singapore, Sudhir has bachelor's degrees from the University of California at Berkeley and a master's degree from the Harvard Kennedy School. Hey, Sudhir, good to have you on board. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jeremy. Nice to be here. Well, we've actually had some similar journeys. You know, we both came from local schools. Then we both went to what was then known as Raffles Junior College, now Raffles Institution. (laughs) We both went to UC Berkeley. And after we both went to Harvard for our master's. You know, you just happen to have like a lot more experience and a lot more leadership in these domains than I do now. I'm not sure about more experience, but I certainly literally have more white hair all over my face and my head. But yeah, it's, it's interesting that we're, we followed a similar path, actually. It was interesting when I, when I left Singapore after army in 1999. So I went to Berkeley after army. And I just had one dream, right? I wanted to get my business degree in, in three years and then become an investment banker after that. That was my sole uh, materialistic uh, sort of money-minded dream. And of course, Berkeley happened to me, as I guess it does to many people. So, you know, I remember a few of my introductory classes, anthropology, uh, geography, which really just kind of opened my mind up to a lot of other issues around the world. And that kind of slowly moved me towards where I am today, you know, uh, interest in writing, uh, interest in social justice, you know, interest in political issues interest in a lot of other things aside from Wall Street. Yeah, definitely. I share the same sentiment. I remember out of NS, I went to UC Berkeley and I started growing out my hair <laughs> to almost shoulder length and I was wearing a lot of tie-dye. Oh, really? <laughs> on campus. So Berkeley got to me. <laughs> I'd love to see those photographs one day. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I was thinking to myself, this is the last time I got to get long hair and wear tie-dye. Otherwise, I'm going to you know, go back into corporate or whatever it is. Uh, especially after so much time in NS, right? Where you're wearing like a bus cut. So you're just yeah. like, you know, yeah. going, 
overshoot to the other end a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I bleached my hair the first time I went for Burning Man. I mean, that that's about as that's about as daring as I got with my hair and my fashion. But yeah. <laughs> I'm glad to, we're going to reminisce about Berkeley days uh, nonstop. So I think before everybody tunes up because we're just like talking about all the fun times and, you know, people's park and everything, you know, time on campus. I'm sure we're going to go into that as well later on. I love for those who don't know you yet, for those, for you to share in your own words, your own uh, leadership and professional journey. Yeah. So I think what I wanted to do is, is talk about it in terms of two strands. One is my journey towards being an independent writer and commentator in Singapore. There aren't too many of us around, but, but you know, we're, we're, we're slowly growing in size. And the other strand I wanted to talk about is how I've managed to, certainly not there yet, it's still an ongoing experiment, but, but how I've attempted to combine different mediums in my storytelling craft. I started off trained in, in the written word, but, but over the past 15 years, I've kind of incorporated more photography, incorporated more social media storytelling and and recently also I've moved into videos. That's the other bit of my journey that I probably want to talk about how, how I've managed to combine those different mediums. And I think a good place to start would be 2005 when I moved back from the state to Singapore. So, you know, like you said, I did a four years in Berkeley, then I, I did two years at Harvard, you know, finished, graduated in 2005. Moved back to Singapore, was looking around for a job and very, very lucky. You know, I think luck is such an important part of any journey, but I was very lucky to get a job at the Economist Group at a unit called Economist Corporate Network, which is a sister unit of the magazine. And so I joined them in 2006. I worked for them for seven years, first at Economist Corporate Network and then at Economist Insight. Corporate Network does a lot of senior level advisory service for companies and Economist Insights uh, sponsored research, so white papers for, for big companies. So I worked for those two units for seven years in Singapore and in Hong Kong. And I say I was lucky because, you know, it was just such a rewarding, transformative, fulfilling experience in, in you know, every way imaginable. As anybody who, who reads The Economist or, or follows products from The Economist Intelligence Unit and, and other bits of the company might, might know, you know, it was so rewarding. And, and, and there are a few things that I'd like to touch on, you know, so I joined them in 06. And, and I think one of the big things was that there were two big shifts going on. So one of them was the sort of shift of corporate intellectual interest towards Asia, right? Every other week, we had a new company wanting to invest a whole bunch of money, intellectual interest, you know, there's so much interest in the China story and, and shortly after that, the India story as well. And it was great to be in a position at the Economist Group, where I would, you know, kind of had a ringside seat to all of that, right? A lot of my work was at the interface of business and government and society, writing for the company, making presentations on, on regional economic outlook, things like that. A very interesting time to be there. The other big shift that I think was very important is that it was a very turbulent time for media in general, right? It was the whole digital revolution, Business models were being upended. There was a huge shift of advertising revenue from print to digital. There was the rise of native advertising, sponsored research. That whole industry was changing. There was also a big shift in terms of content. That was the period when people were saying, let's forget the 50-page PDF. Nobody wants to read that anymore, right? People now, they have new devices. They, they have apps, switching to video, switching to social media, more infographics 
how can we reframe our content to tell a different story to a new kind of consumer that doesn't necessarily want that long, sometimes dry paper that, that we used to produce. So, so I think being there again during that shift was great for me in terms of my understanding and knowledge of the media industry and, and all the changes and I, I, I lived through, but also that allowed me to think about how to adapt myself to changes that I'm still living through today and, and, and changes that will probably be with us for the next 10 or 15 years. Attention spans are also getting shorter. I think, I think that's, that's one of the big things that, that came along with that. That's also affected the way I think about content. The third thing about The Economist that, that I want to mention is amazing colleagues and mentors. Some of my best friends I, I made then, they're still people who I'm in touch with every day. And, and I think that's such an important part of personal growth and development and everything else. They gave me opportunities very early on in life. I, I, I still remember the very first time they put me up on stage in 2007. It was this big, big sort of gala, regional economic outlook type events. And, you know, there were like these three older white guys and me. And it was nice that they trusted me enough to, to put me in front of a lot of very senior people and, you know, share, share the Economist Intelligence Unit perspective on, on Asia. The night before, they very nicely invited me out to join them for beers. And I was like, no, 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 no. I, you know, I, I've, I've, got to, I've got to practice my presentation and they still give me a lot of shit for that, about, about the nerves that I had the night before. But anyway, you know, it, it was great. I had amazing bosses who were willing to give me all these opportunities very early on in my career. And they were incredibly disciplined about writing, right? So, you know, I remember my boss, like, correcting little bits of grammar in my emails, just in my personal emails to him, you know, it's, it's not even content that's going out to anybody else, but... I think that really inculcated this, this kind of writing discipline in me from a, from a very uh, early part of my career. A couple of last things. You know, I, I think the other thing that I really appreciated is the opportunity to write across mediums. I wrote for the magazine, most of the world calls the magazine, what we call the newspaper, probably the most popular product. I, I freelanced for them, but I also wrote mostly for two other units. And I think the difference there is that the newspaper or magazine it's a sort of a free product. So you're writing for, for the layman or layperson, whereas a lot of the other products are B2B products. So you're writing for a business audience. And I think that, that kind of allowed me to develop talent and flexibility in terms of, of my writing skills, right? And knowing how to adjust and change the tone and style and things like that, depending on your audience, which is probably the most important skill for any writer or commentator, right? Knowing your audience and tailoring your message for the audience. And I got a chance to do that. Uh, very often, very early in my career. And finally, last point before I stop this long monologue, but, but, uh, I was very lucky also because at the end of the day, having the economist group on my CV has just opened so many doors. I built a great network there. I still get work from people who I met during my seven years at the economist group. And even today, when, when people see it on my CV, it's, it's just, you know, it adds a bit of credibility to my, to my name and, and helps me. Helps me do whatever I want to do. So, so I was very fortunate to have that uh, early on in my career. Yeah, so dear, I mean, The Economist is something that everybody in the business world seems to be reading and would definitely recognize. I mean, I was in economics and business and undergrad. And that's when I started really reading The Economist more thoroughly. I mean, I think even in JC, junior college, they were giving us The Economist articles to read as part of the general paper practice and stuff like that. So I've been reading it for a long time and you know, it's interesting because as you keep reading it over and over, you kind of get a sense of not just the, I think the sophistication, obviously, of the thinking, but also you get a much better sense also of 
I think the values that he has, you know, for better or for worse, depending on you agree or disagree. And then lastly, also, you get to see how much it percolates into the current way the business world talks about itself, right? I mean, I recently was on a panel with uh, some folks and, you know, obviously the guest was just commenting about the state of some stuff in the region. And I was just watching a panelist say stuff that was like, and after a while, I just clicked and I was like, wait, you're paraphrasing the, the Economist. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and then, and then I know what you're talking about, but it's also good because I also read Economist. <laughs> so I already have my own reactions to what you're saying. So, so now I, you know, I can sound very sophisticated talking about it and reacting. You know, I disagreed with Economist on some parts, but I also agreed with other parts. And, and it's so funny where it's like kind of like, uh, I feel like it's the one publication that the entire business world reads together right it's like what the, yeah. the weekly book club that the entire business world has right you know my mother-in-law reads it my wife reads it <laughs> my father-in-law reads it my dad reads it i read it so you know it's like one of those things that you know and then obviously we talk about it all the time right so uh, it's funny to see how the economist really kind of like is an invisible hand <laughs> to the discourse yeah 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 i mean it's funny we got a joke inside the company and outside as well that the it comes out on a Friday, so you know it allows everybody who reads it to look at the act and think smart over the weekend, right? During their cocktail sessions with their friends. <laughs> but I am similar to you in my journey with with, with the publication. I I started reading it at A level, so that's pre-university, and that got sort of assigned to us every week, you know. And one of the things that I really appreciated was my econs lecturer telling us just read whatever you want. There's no fixed formula to any of this stuff. So you know, I and, and there are a lot of people within the company that I know who actually prefer the the second half of the of the magazine. I start reading it from the back. The obituary is my favorite page. I love the science and technology. I I, I love the books books and art section. You know, even though I I can't read like I guess everybody who's listening, I you know, I can't read even five percent of all the books I want to read. You know, I, I feel a great sense of accomplishment if. At least I've read the book review on The Economist. You know, I, I kind of feel I've read the book. I could go on for an hour, but but it's, the other thing that's very interesting is is the narrative structure of the argument. So so we used to joke in grad school that you kind of know an economist reader because you know that the, there's a almost formulaic way of of addressing a topic. Right? It's like this is why you should vote for Biden. This is why you shouldn't vote for Biden. But this is why we really think you should vote for Biden. So you know, it's almost every. Um, opinion piece or commentary kind of has that little bit of a structure in, in place. And, and I think it's, there are a lot of lessons as a, as a writer or commentator or analyst that you can draw from that. You know, I, I think in my experience working with different younger writers, the ability to formulate a counter argument is very, very important. A counter thesis or counter argument. And, and I think the economist does that very well in a, in a, in a very succinct way. And not everybody does it in their writing. So I, so I think, yeah. Just one of the many things I think that people can learn from reading reading the magazine. Yeah, it's interesting that The Economist has become that touchstone from a literary and publishing perspective, as well as a business perspective. I still remember someone tweeted that in the interview, they asked someone uh, what their life goal was. And their life goal was to be on the obituary for the Economist, <laughs> and, and everyone was like, "Wow, solid! That's a that's a solid goal." Like you know, like <laughs> respect. <Yeah>. You know, <laughs> and I'm gonna say it's one of my favorite uh, pieces as well. So I often flip to that page first if I can't read everything. 
Um, so I'm kind of curious, you know, before we talk about you know the ending of life, you know, and the journey, let's talk about the beginning a little bit, right? So I mean, obviously, you know, started at Economist, and then since then you've become a strong independent journalist. So how did that beginning of that journey look like to you? Yeah. So in 2012, while I was still at the company, I published my first book, which is called Floating on a Malayan Breeze. So it's a, it's a book on Malaysia and Singapore. Part, part travelogue, part social commentary. Published it in 2012. You know, kind of moderate commercial reception, but but there was pretty good critical feedback from my mentors, importantly, who read the book, and you know, people around me who who are interested in the topic Singapore and Malaysia. So I, I got a lot of like little bits of encouragement from people like that to say, hey, you know, you you have. You might have a future as a as a book writer, which is always, I guess, a, a bit of nervousness that comes to the first book. Is it just going to be a one-off, or or is it actually going to be the start of a of a long journey? And so I was very encouraged by my mentors within the company telling me that that they liked the book. And you know, the other thing that they told me, and and they've been telling me this for for a while, was that it's a wonderful place to be. You know, you spend your entire career here. You know, these are people who'd probably been with the companies. Some of them twenty plus years, but you know they they were like just be aware of the of of one downside, couple of downsides, many positives, but but be aware of this one downside that that you know you over time you will be indoctrinated in a particular form of writing. Now it's a beautiful form of writing; it's the Economist style, or, or if it's at the EIU, the EIU style. But doing this for twenty or twenty five years essentially almost kind of locks you in as an artist, right? Because you, you're, you're just so indoctrinated in that style of writing. I've always had sort of dreams to push myself artistically in different ways. So far, I've been focusing on nonfiction. At, at some point, I'd love to do fiction. But but even within the nonfiction realm, right, there, there's so many ways you can approach nonfiction, gonzo journalism, you know, more literary forms of journalism, so on and so forth, which I realize I may not necessarily get a chance to do if I, if I stayed at the same company. So, so that's kind of what sort of like pushed me to like think about doing something else. Yeah. So in 2013, I decided, so which is a year after I published my book, I decided to just, uh, you know, I, I decided I, I built up enough of a network. I, I got enough experience for that part of my career. And, and so I decided to leave, try things on my own. And um, I, I was very nervous. So what was that journey like? You know, I, I think extremely nervous. And, and one of the things you don't process enough, but kind of your face to the stark reality when it happens is that I had gotten so used to having these powerful, big brand names behind me, right? And this goes back 13 years. Four years I was at Berkeley, two years I was at Harvard, then at seven years I was at the Economist Group. During that time, no matter who I wanted to speak to, it, you know, I could just email them. And, and you know, if, if they see like, you know, Sudhir at the Economist or Sudhir, People would respond to me, right? At the very least, they'd, they'd re- reply to my email or, or pick up my phone call. But you know, 2013, suddenly I was I was out on my own, right? I, I was just Sudhir at gmail.com. You know, I, I didn't have those big brand name crutches anymore, and 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 I think I had self confidence, but but you still, you know, when when you're faced with that reality, and when you're faced with then having to go to a situation where, as a writer, uh, people stop replying to your emails, you know. People ask you, who are you? And then, you know, I, I go to spend five minutes going through my CV with everybody, which I didn't have to do before because, you know, the economist name opens any door. That was a very slightly nerve wracking, but interesting part of the journey for me, which thankfully over time I, I got used to it. And, and, and also I think, you know, I realized that 
people you talk to are actually <laughs> a lot more receptive of people, even outside of whatever big brand name they might be associated with. So, so I think that was a bit of my journey that I had to get used to. The other bit of it, which was also very nerve wracking, was that there were a lot of naysayers, right? If you think about it, I had, that was my first job out of university. I'd been there for seven years. People were like, oh, how can you leave this great, hallowed, wonderful company? It's every writer dreams of being at the Economist Group and, and you only publish one book. You think you've made it already? What the heck are you doing? So, so there were a lot of naysayers, actually. You know, it, it, it's funny now looking back, but all the aunties and uncles, and, and I think this is all, you know, once again, with our sort of like strict predetermined career paths that we that we deal with in Asia. But, you know, I, I think people see that shift or saw that shift suddenly in 2013, saw that shift from stable, secure job with a big company suddenly moving out. I, I think in today's world, it's getting easier with, with you know, the gig economy and, and freelance or, or contract worker or independent worker isn't such a bad word anymore for, for some people, but certainly difficult. That was the other difficulty I had at that point in time. But I was also so energized. So, so you know, I think it wasn't just nerves. I, I think this, this is an interesting thing about any journey. You know, at the same time, it's, there's a sense of excitement about doing something new, particularly with storytelling, you know, right? So exactly what my mentors had told me, now I was faced with this completely blank canvas to think about storytelling, right? How did I want to maybe move away from that economist style that, that I had kind of developed to writing in a different form, thinking about storytelling in different ways. And, and I think that was very exciting. It was also very exciting to think that I was now going to start working with all sorts of different people, right? Different editors, different teams, video producers, artists, creators, all the different people that, that have come together in my life over the past seven years. So, you know, I spent eight months traveling across India and China for the book that I'm working on now. And I had a photographer following me. So just, just that interaction with the, with the photographer is the kind of interaction I would have never gotten if I had just stayed in a regular job. Those sorts of things really, you know, I, I find very fulfilling and are the kinds of things that you don't get to do if you're just stuck in a particular company. Since leaving the Economist Group, I, I've written on technology. I've written on science. I, I've written long form for publications like Foreign Affairs. I've written short form for newspapers like SCMP, the South China Morning Post. These are all professional experiences that I wouldn't have gotten if I just stayed with one company. So I think that's all part of my learning and development and, and very exciting. So, so just to give you an example, right now, many different things that I, I'm thinking about in terms of my content. You know, I, I just finished a long leadership series on, on Singapore's prospective next prime minister. I am working on a video about Oxley Road, which is uh, the home of the late Lee Kuan Yew. So there's been a lot of uh, disagreement about what to do with, with his house. And, and I'm working on a video about that and, and thinking about ways to marry the video with my long form content. My editor from one of the science papers that I write for just asked me to look into a paper on, on agri-tech and alternative meat and the modern food industry. And then I've got my, my book project as well. So my book on China and India, a couple of other book projects. So, you know, spitting all that out at you to, to, to give you a sense of, of the diversity of content that, that actually um, I kind of juggle these days, which is actually, for me, it's very exciting. You know, I, I, I think you'll probably find some editors and publishers out there who will who hate dealing with somebody like me because I can never focus on one thing. But I think it's interesting because it, there's so much like cross-fertilization of ideas that, that kind of goes on again, which, which is very different 
from being in a more structured environment. You don't have as much cross-fertilization of ideas from, from different pieces of content. Oh, that's amazing. And I'm so excited for you because, you know, you really cross that bridge from just setting off on your own to now being able to fully explore the range of ideas and formats that you want to do, right? So that's amazing. I think you started touching on this a little bit, which was, you know, one of the biggest challenges for you was really kind of like the naysayers, you know, and, you know, obviously also, also like setting off on your own. Would you say those are the hardest parts and obstacles you had to overcome or were there other things that you would like to expound on? Getting people used to alternative careers, I think that was a big part of it. Showing people that, that it's possible to be done, showing people that, that you can enjoy it and make a living out of it. I, I think that's very important. Obstacles, I'd say money is a never-ending obstacle. I think as a freelancer, it's not something that is ever far from your mind. And, and especially the last year, you know, COVID has, has obviously led to, to a drop in my freelance income. But I think a lot of it is just also reframing the way you think about the good life, right? I brought down my expenses quite a lot. I drink cheaper beer. I kind of see, but it's also like reframing that, that struggle as part of the journey, right? You know, I, I think that's a choice you make when you move from a, having a stable income with health benefits and all the rest of it to being freelance. And I think as long as you view that as part of the journey and, and part of the excitement and struggle, that, that that's important. I think other obstacles, you know, I think in Singapore, and, and I think this is true for, for any country that has had a long either party or, or establishment in power for a long time, you know, I think not everybody is very supportive of independent commentators. So I think that certainly has been an obstacle that, that I've had to deal with. But at the same time, despite all the critics that might be out there, you know, every day there are, there are more and more supporters as well. So, so you know, there's a lot of love and I can't stress enough kind of the importance of fans, supporters, readers who keep telling me to keep putting out the, the alternative type of content that I, that I have been putting out. And, and I think they, they are very important. I mean, a lot of them are my friends, but you know, a lot more also people that I, I don't know about who write random messages of support. So I, so I think for any independent commentator in any, I, I think in any situation, not just Singapore, but, but any situation where You've got an established media and, and you've got a, a dominant voice in terms of public discourse. You know, I think you're, you're going to get some pushback from, from the dominant players, um, either, either in terms of financial leverage or, or also sometimes in terms of outright criticism and attempts to smear you. So I think, again, that, that's been one thing I've had to deal with. But like I said, there are a lot of people behind me, so it just makes it easier. Yeah, that's so true. One thing is, of course, is a huge contrast between, you know, Berkeley and the hallowed, you know, free speech movement. And we've seen that to some extent as well at Harvard as well, which is very much an academic, independent taught, very kind of like scholarly uh, dynamics on independence and academic freedoms. And of course, there's a world today, right? I mean, I think this argument that you're kind of hinting at is a conflict that's happening everywhere, right? In the US, in the EU, globally, which is, you know, how do we handle, uh, you know, free speech on one hand, and the other hand, of course, like the different permutations or factors that people are trying to accommodate and so on and so forth. So I'm just kind of curious, what are your thoughts about that at a high level? Well, I don't think any society has gotten speech right. If you look at what's happened over the past 10 years in, if we just take places like Berkeley and Harvard, for example, certainly aspects of the shutting down of speech. I, I wouldn't just call it liberal intolerance of speech. I think that's something people talk about, but certainly 
there's an aspect of liberal intolerance of speech, which, which is part of it. The shutting down, the shouting down, the, the cancelling of particular speakers who, who try to come to Berkeley, for example. I think these are all complications right now in, in the broader sphere, which, which I don't think NBA has really gotten right. And then you've got the issue of technology. So, so, you know, I, I think the, the natural conversation then is about how the impact of, of the Facebooks and Twitters of the world on, on speech. We could speak about different countries' approach to it. I, I, I think in Singapore, my sense is that still have a long way to go in terms of incentivizing ordinary people to voice their opinions. Despite all the pushback against Facebook, for example, and, and you know, if you look, at, for example, at what, what's happened with Facebook in Myanmar over the past decade, you know, I, suddenly you can, you can point a lot of fingers, very damning fingers at, at Facebook's conduct in, in Myanmar and, and, and the way they've allowed hate speech to just spiral out of control and, and the impact that it's had on the, on the Rohingyas and the conflict there. I often tell people that, that in the Singapore situation, actually, as far as I can see, Facebook has had a very powerful, liberalizing, democratizing sort of impact in terms of speech. It's, it's given a platform to many people, including myself, who may not have had an opportunity to speak 20 years ago. It's allowed many different groups to form connections across society, may not have had the platform for that 20 years ago. Singapore, for those of your listeners who are not too familiar, we, we've always had a very strong mainstream media set up. Government control channels have, have usually, I'd say up till about mid 2000s have, have been the dominant voices in society. Now, now social media and the internet has changed that over the past 15, 20 years. So I think Facebook and, and other social media channels, I would say have been a force for good in, in Singapore, but I'm very aware, hyper aware of the, of the dangers of, of speech as we've seen play out in places like Myanmar. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's such a complicated conversation, which I don't see ending anytime soon. I, if I could just leave it one high level thought, you know, I, I think it's from what I've seen, it's not so much freedom of speech that we have to prioritize in, in a modern thinking society, but it's the freedom to hear from diverse viewpoints, which they don't always equate because, because freedom of speech, complete freedom of speech can lead to the complete shutting down of particular vulnerable communities. If, if freedom of speech means I'm going to tell the, the persecuted Rohingyas to shut up, I'm going to tell the persecuted Rohingyas to, you know, get the hell out of here. That, that essentially means that I'm not going to hear from the persecuted Rohingyas. So, so I think the, at a high level, the more important philosophy for a society is that they have to find a way to ensure freedom for all voices to be heard. Those two are, are not always aligned to each other. Wow, that was actually a really deep thought. I mean, I never heard of that. That's a really orthogonal take. Which is, you know, we always talk about growing up is like my parents tell me, hey, it's important to speak, but it's also important to listen, right? And hear, right? And I think there's something very truthful here, which is I think a lot of it is being framed as, you know, freedom of speech, but whether there's freedom to hear and listen, that's a very uh, orthogonal, very different take, uh, you know. No, especially in societies where you have such unequal access to information, unequal access to the means to speak. Why, why are the two of us here having, having a conversation, right? I mean, and why are people listening to me when I, when I speak? I've obviously had, had many forms of privilege throughout my life. You know, I, I spoke at length about the economist group, but, but I've had so many other forms of privilege throughout my life. But I think the best way forward is, is for us to ensure that all the different constituent groups have access for their voices to be heard. You know, most societies around the world are a long, long way from that. 
kind of a pipe dream, right? But, you know, as with a lot of these things, that's the target we have to aim for. That's what we have to strive to achieve. It's a long way off, but that's what we have to strive to achieve. It definitely resonates with me. And what I definitely agree with you is about there's an articulation of the consequences and how we manage it versus it's longer or like more invisible effects, right? That really reminds me actually of like, you know, I did some research back in the day for undergrad. And one of the things that I came across and was really struck by was through the arc of history, you know, you've seen communication technologies, like you said, create the ability of speech, but also create the ability to hear and listen, right? And so obviously the printing press fueled revolutions, right? Printing pamphlets <laughs> were instrumental for the, the creation of the newspaper or the pamphlet created tremendous social change and economic change across Europe and America. Yet today, none of us would say, let's delete newspapers, right? <laughs> you, know, yeah. you know, the radio also changed and created humongous amount of change at the societal and cultural and economic and, you know, governance level. So did TV as well. <laughs> so did cable. And so I think, you know, I feel like to me, like society is still grappling and going through that conversation. <laughs> like I wanted to myself a little bit out of conversations we're having about the internet today are the ones that you know, people had around the printing press, right? You know, can we regulate the printing press versus, you know, do we let everybody have it? And I think obviously, you know, today it's somewhere in between, right? To some extent. So it's interesting to think about that from a historical arc as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, I think there certainly is an argument to be made that it's, uh, it's just the generational medium of our time. But there also is an argument to be made that there is something fundamentally different when you look at the concentration of financial and commercial and marketplace power that, that some of these companies have, you know, I, I think there is something a little bit unprecedented with that. Potentially, the ability to potentially shape conversation. So, you know, I haven't really fully formed my thoughts on this, but I do think I do think there's an element of both. I, I think, like you said, it's somewhere in the middle. I do feel we're living through a long transitory period right now where, you know, we're, we're getting used to just conversing, right? At its most elemental form, humans are just getting used to a new way of conversing with each other. That, that's what it is. How long it's going to take and, and how government, technology firms, society relationships are going to be changed. There's so many interesting, you know, for, for me as an analyst, it's fascinating, right? I, to think about the Great Firewall in China, to think about separate evolution of technology in China versus, versus outside, to you know, think about whether Biden or, or Elizabeth Warren type intervention is going to come in to, to break up tech companies. I, I, I think these are all like fascinating questions of our, of our generation. For me, for me, like taking a step back from, from all the carnage that's out there, it's actually like, it's so fascinating. Right? I'm, just, I'm just following it with, with, with so much interest and, and very conscious of the fact that I'm very much a, a user as well, a beneficiary as well. You know, every time I post something on Facebook. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting time. Yeah. I mean, I think it's also interesting to see so many independent journalists like you take the advantage of these trends, right? To create their own personal brand, their own personal writing channel. I mean, you know, I really love what you've done with sudiatv.com. I'd love for you to share a little bit more about what you write there, what you share there. And it's definitely been very interesting for many of my peers as well to read about what you're saying and to agree or to disagree, right, with what you're saying. And so it's interesting to see that dynamic happen. And the truth is, 
20 years ago, I don't think anybody would have been even discovered you to agree or disagree with you, right? You know, there would have been no uh, sudiatv.com to go and have that point of view or react to it, right? So I'm so curious about it. How do you feel that about that for yourself and other independent journalists like yourself? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it was an interesting question, right? You know, I think if we didn't have the internet, a lot of us would either just have been doing something else. Or we would have been just traditional journalists with the with the mainstream media, which, which would have necessarily meant that the diversity of views in Singapore would have been less, right? Because we would have been operating under particular constraints. Yeah. So you know, I started my blog, Studio TV, SUDHIRTV.com. It's actually my initial Studio Thomas Padikate, but since I moved into video, it's it's actually formed a very convenient acronym, right? Studio TV. So thank you to my Indian parents for giving me this very long, archaic Indian name, which finally has some purpose. But I, I started the blog, I think, like 15 years ago. And it, it, that was, at that time, it was mostly the written word. It was very casual. I think I had just finished at Berkeley. It's since just sort of grown and evolved over the years and more and more subscribers, more people supporting it. I now have a, have a section where I, I post all my videos. You know, I, I started doing videos more seriously about 15 months ago. You know, I think the the interesting thing is is I've started experimenting more with combining the different mediums. So you know, having a long form piece, but also interspersing it with with video and images and and other bits of content, infographics sometimes. And yeah, it's, it's kind of become like a bit of a digital magazine. Started off as a blog, and I, and I think the best way to describe it now is a digital magazine. You know, sort of links to my books as well over there, to my Instagram page. It's kind of a fun thing, which which uh. Also has a lot of serious content for for people who want that kind of thing. It, it it's allowed me to push myself. If, if I think about myself as a writer purely, it's allowed me to push myself in different ways. Because I I recently wrote an obituary on on Maradona, somebody who I who I grew up with, who for about one month in 1986, I somehow thought I might one day be like him. But then uh, the the realities of growing up in Singapore versus Argentina hit home very hard. So I wrote a piece on him recently. I, I wrote a piece on long obituary on uh, my experience of meeting Anthony Bourdain, uh, you know, after Bourdain died. I, I do a lot of writing on food as well. So yeah, it's it's just been this vehicle that that's allowed me to push myself in different ways. And and again, I, I just have much more time for for this kind of creative pursuit ever since I left my job. So yeah, it's 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 been fun. It's been a lot of fun uh, doing the blog. I think a lot of people in the tech industry are both, you know, very proud about the ability to indirectly or directly support like, you know, journalists like yourself, as well as content creators that are like so many of us, right? But they're also very um, ambivalent about their own role in the worst things that are being ascribed, right? So we talked about the violence um, that were amplified, we're talking about protests, we're talking about echo chambers. You know, talking about a great filter and all these different dynamics of technology and algorithms and so so forth. So kind of curious, like, do you have any thoughts on people who want advice on how to think about their, you know, moral obligations or their ethical um, dynamics they need to be thinking through as they work, you know, day to day, you know, as a junior member of a, you know, tech company or as a middle manager or as a senior executive? You know, how would you think about that? I guess I'll answer that with a focus on media, media and technology. I think the biggest danger, and I've seen it 
you know, I don't want to name any, put any companies in the spotlight, but I've seen it several times now over the past 15 years in Singapore and, and in other countries, but, but in Singapore, particularly just because that's where I have the most experience. I, I think the biggest danger is with people who place too much of a premium on eyeballs and short-term exit. I think once you have that as your guiding mantras, right? And, and, and sometimes, you know, sometimes it's not even a guiding mantra. It's, it's something that the, that the founder has at the back of his mind and he doesn't want to talk about it or she doesn't want to talk about it. And, and they, they kind of cover it up with all kinds of, you know, wonderful flowery messages about having a new media channel or creating content for, for this area of society that doesn't have content that addresses their needs. But actually at, the, at one of their core impulses is how can I drive up eyeballs? How can I, how can I drive up engagement? How can I position this company for an exit within three, five, seven, nine years? You know, whatever it is, depending on the, the founder. And that really is in today's media landscape. For me, it's such a dangerous way to think about it because so if you go back to some of the things I, I talked about with the, the changes happening at the Economist Group and other traditional media companies, a lot of traditional media companies which have built up processes to deal with a lot of editorial issues, right? They are having so many financial pressures put on them. Now, the New York Times has done an amazing job of making the transition to the digital era. I'm, I'm not so sure about a lot of other companies out there. And so we basically have this almost a bit of a kind of a gap between these traditional stalwarts who have the right processes in place, but aren't yet fit for purpose for the digital age. And into this vacuum, into this gap, you're getting all these new players coming in and a lot of them don't have the right processes, don't have the right editorial checks, don't have the right ways of building up trust with the, with the reader or viewer, don't have the right ways of fact-checking, you know, basic fact-checking is not there. So, and they are incentivized so much and, and we can have a longer discussion about the sort of trail of incentives, you know, going all the way to venture capitalists as well, right? Who, who are themselves fueling, fueling the entire industry. That's probably the biggest danger now. I, I, I think, I hope that people entering the new media space or, or anywhere in that media technology space actually think about some of the core journalism values, right? These are values that have been with us for over a century now that the economists have started in the, in the mid 19th century mid 1800s and and so you know a lot of the big traditional companies have, have very strong values uh, and and you don't even have to look very much further afield even if you look at traditional values that newspapers like we have in Singapore have papers like the Straits Times I might disagree with them in terms of their political bias sometimes but at the end of the day they do have those proper core processes in place for most of their content and and I think it's important for anybody starting out to remember remember what those core values are, e even though that might mean that you can't exit in five years or you can't exit in seven years. You know, I, I think I think uh, media media is a little bit different. Amazing. Kind of wrapping things up here. Are there any common myths and misconceptions to you know being a content creator in this new digital age? Well, I, I think one thing that that I've had to deal with is. And this is kind of a challenge as well for me is that, you know, being in front of the camera for the first time was extremely nerve wracking and it's still extremely nerve wracking for me. That, that was probably one of the biggest challenges and transitions that I had to make, you know, from, from being a writer who's very comfortable sitting by myself behind my, the safety and sanctuary of my screen in front of the lights and the camera and everything. And I think the misconception there is that 
So, so I, I've gotten used to it, you know, to, to, to some degree, right? But, you know, it still makes me nervous. My, my, my inner shirt is like completely wet with sweat every time I do a short segment. But the misconception that people who watch me sometimes think that I'm actually enjoying myself and, and having a good time. It's actually quite painful. <laughs> kind of keep doing it for the, bigger, for the bigger purpose. I think what are some of the other misconceptions? I, I guess... Um, yeah, that, that also has to do with with that element of maybe celebrity or, or fame or whatever that, that comes along with it. So so ever since I started doing video, you know, and, and I'm still, you know, it's just kind of small beer compared to all the big tubers around the world, right? I'm, but within the Singapore political scene, I guess I, I've got a bit of a following and people know me. So within that confine of that space, you know, I think sometimes people have started kind of calling me out on the street and, and, and things like that. And I walk around Singapore. The joke that I tell my good friends is that it's been quite fortunate that, that with COVID, I've had to have my mask on, right? Most of the time, so people can't really, can't really spot me. And, and, you know, it's a difficult thing to talk about as well, because at the same time, nothing gives me as much joy as like meeting somebody who's been following my work or has been supporting me. And, and I know that, you know, that they're kind of the reason that I still have the energy to do these things. But I think then again, there's, there's that myth and misconception, which I think is true for some quote unquote influencers. And I, I'd never call myself that, that they actually enjoy the limelight and the spotlight and everything else. But, but I think the reality for a lot of us, and, and I'm sure it's true for writers, and, and, and it'll be true for any writer who's, who's moving to video is that that element of it is not something that really attracts me. It's, it's not the reason, you know, we kind of do things to be recognized on the street or, or, or to have some little bit of fame or whatever. So, so I think that, that, that's another myth or misconception. I think th- those are the two that kind of come off, come off the top of my head. Last question here is, for those who are, you know, considering a journey similar to yours, right? You know, either in terms of like journalism or, you know, becoming a content creator online, what advice or resources would you recommend to them? I think I'm, I'm, I'm going to answer this again in a slightly philosophical way, which would be to say that I, that I think the most important thing is to expose yourself to every medium. I think in today's world, to be a content creator, you absolutely have to consume every possible medium. So unpack that a little bit. Like I know people who don't watch much TV, and this is just not like older people like my dad, but but I know younger people also who who they don't watch much TV. You know, they 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 think that TV is a waste of time, and and you know all the knowledge in the world is going to be gotten from books and academic papers or journals or whatever. But actually, in my opinion, some of the best commentary, some of the best language, some of the best ideas I've seen and heard in recent times have been from shows on Netflix and HBO. So, so I'll just give you two examples, like The Crown. I, I, I love The Crown on Netflix. You know, the use of language, thinking about empire, thinking about family relationships, thinking about monarchies and republicanism. You know, I, I think there's so many things that I've gotten from The Crown. And if I could just quote another one, The Watchmen, The Watchmen, a series on HBO, it's almost like the best thing that I've seen on race relations in the U.S., right? If you, if you really think about some of the messages that are coming out of the Watchmen. So that's on the one side, people who, who I know don't watch TV. Then I also know people on the other side, you know, this is, a, I guess, is a bit of a symptom of our short attention span. <laughs> but I also know people who've like stopped reading books. Because they're just spending all their time on YouTube or Netflix or whatever it might be. And, and I think that's a big mistake as well. Because, you know, you, 
a book is one of the few mediums that that allows you this kind of like deep cerebral type thought into a subject you know i, I don't think any other medium really allows you that this, this totally applies as well to people who see themselves only as youtubers even if you see yourself only as a youtuber don't stop reading books please because i think it just allows you to improve the quality of your language the quality of your thought and you don't realize this initially but you know it it kind of really came home to me during my transition to video that it's so important to be able to take these and and this of course is something that the economist trains trains you in as well it's so important to be able to take these long deep thoughts and ideas and really condense them to a very succinct message and i was doing that for a long time in my writing but you know video is a whole different you know ball game in, in that in, in that respect um and thinking about expressions and everything like that and i think when you actually so so for people who like to do video the reason i'll say still read books is because you need to have that really strong body of knowledge in in particular subject in order to be able to break it down i don't think you can just like read a couple of articles which is what a lot of the content creators today do right they read a couple of articles they watch a couple of videos and then they they spit out something at you and and you know it, it's almost always like a victory of of a um, style over substance right it's it, it's flashy and it's nice but when you listen to the word that they're saying it's actually not the best way of presenting that bit of information on a topic so that would be my my singular piece of advice to a content creator to a commentator to a writer whatever is don't block yourself off from any particular medium and it's actually one of the hardest things for us to do today how do you design your media diet today right between tv podcast book you know it, it's terrible because <laughs> it's a sort of paradox of choice right but but uh, i i think it's it's a very important thing for for anybody to do absolutely Amazing. So dear, thank you so much for sharing your journey and so much deep thinking for this episode. And I'm sure a lot of people are going to really appreciate you sharing all of it. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. It's been, it's been fun. And I still want to see those uh, tie-dye t-shirt photographs that you have. <laughs>